Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. This is Phil Stevens, competitive powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, I run Strength Guild, and I'm currently in the Lone Star State, sitting on the back porch. Nice. Ooh. Yeah. Nice. What part of Texas? San Antonio. Antonio. Nice. Uh, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, uh, faculty member at the Kerrigan Institute, creator of the Flex Diet Cert, and a bunch of other stuff. And my name is Kara Cradle. Um, I'm a science writer from North Carolina, specializing in health and wellness, but with a special passion for nutrition as the foundation of any person's health. Sweet. Okay. Well, that'll be good. It's it's always fun to have people with nutrition backgrounds on the show um, because, well, Phil and Mike, of course, know this. I don't know how familiar you are, but when you look at a lot of like uh, fitness and muscle magazines and stuff like that, sometimes you wonder about the qualifications of the people who are, you know, trying to um, cover a story, you know, or mm-hmm. offer their own opinions and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, we have one little piece of news because I don't want to... Uh, delve too much into the time and take away from Kira's origin story, but this just came out. I just happened to see it, and I thought Mike might be interested in this, and I know that a lot of our listeners are, lately I've been looking at Google Analytics and stuff, and uh, I can tell you that a lot of people are still very, very interested in keto, uh, ketogenic diets and that kind of thing, so this would be interesting for you guys. Strength and Muscle Sport News. It is from uh, Kara Ebeling and colleagues. This is from the Journal of Nutrition, Obesity, and Eating Disorders. Energy requirement is higher during weight loss maintenance in adults consuming low compared to high carbohydrate diets. So when they say energy um, requirements, you could also consider that energy expenditure, right? This is the difference when I taught in ex-phys versus nutrition departments. In ex-phys departments, we talk about energy expenditure a lot, uh, total energy expenditure, things like that. And in nutrition, we kind of take that from a different angle and we just talk about, so what's your requirement, right? Because whatever your expenditure is, if you want to be weight stable, that's also your requirement. In any case, this is from um, Boston Children's Hospital, Harvard Medical School. Um, So quick introduction, it says, The independent effect of dietary composition on energy expenditure. So think about metabolic rate, for example. Uh, 
is a topic of controversy. According to the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity, the high ratio of blood insulin to glucagon concentrations in the postprandial period, so, you know, after a meal period, uh, with consumption of high glycemic load diet, partitions metabolic fuels toward fat storage. Hunger may increase, especially in conditions like post-weight loss. So essentially that's what they're looking at here is they had people lose some weight and then they had them go on different percentages of carbs to see what might be the best to kind of maintain that weight loss, okay? Uh, It says because reduced energy expenditure following weight loss may predispose people to weight regain, research into, of course, the dietary determinants of metabolic rate is useful both scientifically and clinically. So what did they do? Uh, After attaining a mean run-in weight loss of 10.5%, so they got people to lose about 10% of their body mass, that's in dietetics, that's where we often suggest get down about that far. I wouldn't go that much lower, you know, maybe uh, hold it steady for a little while uh, rather than getting too extreme. But so 10, roughly 10% of their uh, body weight lost, uh, 164 adults, 70% were women. Uh, they were randomly assigned to a low-carb percentage that was 20% carb in the diet by calories, a moderate-carb diet that was 40% carbs, or a high-carb diet, which was 60% carbs, for 20 weeks. Um, they adjusted the calorie content uh, to basically maintain their body weight within plus or minus 2 kilograms. Okay, So they don't want anybody drifting more than 5 or 6 pounds in one direction or another because they want to look at the percentage carb, not the calorie influence. The results... Um, the energy expenditure uh, was higher in the low-carb group. So this is interesting. Depending on how they looked at it, it ranged from, from one method, 181 to 246 calories per day, uh, faster metabolism, if you will. And from another mes- method, it was 245 to 323 more calories per day. So their conclusion here is that the energy requirement, so again, think energy expenditure, if you will, was higher on a low versus high-carb diet during weight loss maintenance in adults. And they say this is consistent with the carb-insulin model. So this is sort of evidence that, you know, we have to be careful, like, wanting to hear certain evidence, right, But because it agrees with our biases. But if you're a keto person and you like low-carb diets, and I know low-carb, it doesn't always mean keto, but uh, this suggests that despite the higher energy density, right? All nine calories in a gram from fat, you end up with faster metabolism because you don't have the high blood sugar, high insulin all the time. You're not always in storage mode. So I think this excess energy expenditure uh, or the way they put it requirement, it may offset, you know, the higher calories uh, from fat. So it's, it's sort of evidence that, you know, low carb diets uh, may help. Mike, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I haven't read that one yet, but who is the author on that? Uh, last name is Ebeling, E-B-B-E-L-I-N-G, Kara Ebeling. Okay. Um, okay, was that from David Ludwig's lab by chance? Yes, yep. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why, is, do, do, uh, do, do, is there a certain bias coming out of that lab, do you think, or what? Yeah, there. anytime I hear that hypothesis stated, which it's hard because Part of it's kind of correct, but yet everybody wants to pin it that it's just that uh, simplistic and it's that easy, I guess. Um, so some of the stuff they've 
they've shown has been, in my opinion, kind of biased. Um, so a lot of times they don't control for protein or fiber or different things like that. So anyway, I'd have to read the study and see what it says. Yeah. And then it also has to look at what population you're looking at too, right? Are you dealing with people that are just trying to do weight loss, but maybe are not the best on the metabolic health spectrum? So there may be other ramifications with that in terms of how insulin and glucose work in terms of uh, appetite, I think, which is eh, debatable, probably yet to be discovered. Because uh, you know in healthy people that having higher levels of insulin or glucose acutely, a lot of times actually turns down appetite, which makes sense, right? If you just had a huge carbohydrate meal, you're probably not going to be as hungry as you were before. So anyway, aside from rebound, I guess, right? Again, mean, yeah. Um, and honestly, I think our listeners know by now, but yeah, population specificity is a huge deal. You know, like how, how well do these guys handle carbohydrates to begin with? If they're completely sedentary, they're not going to handle them nearly as well as very active people. Uh, they did hold protein stable throughout the groups at 20%. Um, oh, that's good. So, I mean, so there was that, but yeah, it's just interesting, right? That if you're, um, oh yeah, if you're. Uh, basically eschewing the carbs, then you end up with a maybe a 250 or 300 calorie per day faster metabolism, in a sense. Um, and at the end, was there a big difference in weight loss, per se? Well, they're just looking at the maintenance phase uh, after the 10%. So this is maintenance after uh, dropping, okay. you know, depending on your body size, let's say 12 to 20 pounds, you know. Got it. Okay. So, Kara, any no. thoughts on that yourself? Um, you know, I don't tend to read that kind of research super often, but I think it's really interesting um, the the changing like energy requirements in the human body based on not just what type of exercise you're doing, but you know if you're like in between uh, high energy expenditure. I think it's interesting how the requirements change. Yeah, in fact, one of the things that I harp on in class, there's a, actually a great explanation in the industry standard in my field, the Catch and McCartle Exercise Physiology book. Mike and I have talked about this, but metabolic rate, you can't just plug and chug in a little regression equation and say, here's your metabolic rate, right? Because it's it's dynamic. <laughs> it changes. And so, especially in this situation, they've lost 10% of their body weight. So presumably their basal metabolic rate is slower a little bit because mm-hmm. their body's sort of in starvation mode, you know, uh, and they're just trying to manipulate the the macronutrients, but it's a, it's a point well taken, Mike, that, um, you know, there are some labs that just maybe because of the preponderance of evidence that they've seen, I mean, it's not always for some, you know, nefarious reason, but yeah, you start to get a little bit of a bias out of it. Um, you know, like some labs, for example, they'll suggest that high fat diets really are quite good for intense performance. Yeah, but that just kind of flies in the face of basic physiology in a lot of ways. You know, normally, of course, you cross over to carbohydrate use with intense exercise and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, and it's hard because a lot of times they're, I mean, a lot of their stuff that I've seen is published like in, you know, Nature and International Journal top of tier. Obesity and yeah. very top tier. They're not, you know, fly by night journals or the back of a napkin somewhere. And, you know, you can make a very good story and, if, you know, like anything as complicated as metabolism, you can find some data to support almost anything at this point. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember they were very critical of Kevin Hall's study uh, for reasons I thought were 
kind of goofy because that was a very well controlled, very expensive um, study. So, like anything, you can always find you know bias in certain areas too. Right. Well, you know, and we've talked about it before, but science is so reductionist. You know, yeah. not just in who, but you know, at what dose and for how long. And I mean, there's so many methods things that they just tend to skip over in the evening news. They love to cut to the conclusion and tell you what to think, you know, and the fun part is the methods in a lot of ways, you know? So, okay. So I, I just thought that might be interesting for everybody. In fact, just one last side note. Um, I, I just finished, um, with Bill Campbell, the NSA book chapter on dietary fat. And it's, um, yeah, you can see certain labs uh, like we need to get Jeff Volok on the show because I want to get his yeah, perspective because a lot of their la- <laughs> a lot of their stuff is low carb ketogenic stuff and how it enhances performance. But you've got to be really careful including like um anaerobic explosive performance. But yep. how are you looking at that? Do you, I mean that could be anything from uh a explosive bench press or a pull, you know, in Phil's gym to a high jump and the, all these things are a different energy system that I can see that high fat diets wouldn't affect as much. But if you want to start to saying like uh, industry standard stuff, like Wingate sprints for 30 seconds, you're talking, you're starting to drift into different energy systems. And I just can't see how the high fat low carb diets are going to be great for that. You know? So you don't want to yeah. cherry pick what test you're using to prove a point, I guess is what I'm saying. So, yeah. and that's why usually the, proponents of that will wheel out the faster study that Volick did which you know on one hand was an extremely well done very controlled study ketogenic type diet in advanced athletes so it has everything that was really good and a lot of it was done you know very well the thing people forget is that it's a time to exhaustion I think it was what 67 or 70 percent of your vo2 max so for that range yeah probably pretty good but we can't extend that to say you're going to break the friggin' two-hour marathon now because that's a completely different energy system and is mostly carbohydrates at that point. Right on, right on. Um, let me switch gears just quickly, and then we'll get to Kara. Um, I, I'm just going to randomly start to pick comments from YouTube since we're doing some of the taste tests and stuff. Uh, this is from Angie. She might smile to hear this, but... She says, based on the voices in the podcast, I honestly thought Dr. Lonnie was Dr. Mike when looking at the video. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. It's funny if, Angie, if this is what you mean, like I've watched people like you see someone who's a podcaster and you're like, oh, I didn't think their voice like you might think their voice doesn't even match their face or something like that. But so, yeah, she was somehow switching you and me, Mike. It's funny. <laughs> All right, I'll take it. Yeah, I, yeah, me too. Yeah, you got a nice full head of hair. I'll, I'll. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's going gray, but still there. <laughs> okay, but uh, so I digress. Uh, thanks for your patience, Kara. Uh, what I would like to do is just kind of delve into uh, your background as a science journalist. Uh, and to be fair, and I think I might have mentioned this to you, but over the years. I've been a little critical sometimes, you know, I'll see something in the news, especially in the fitness world. And I feel like sometimes mm-hmm. the journalists aren't real journalists and the scientists aren't real scientists. And, and, and we can dig into this, uh, after the mid show break about, you know, what makes good yeah. science journalism. But, um, I guess you personally though, why do you, why do you do what you do? How do you get into a love of science and, you know, all the projects that you now do and that kind of thing? 
Well, I'll start by saying that it was not a clear path for me. So it's not something that I grew up dreaming to be. It just kind of ended up being the thing for me. So, and ironically too, in high school, I remember my very first experience with biology. Um, I think as a freshman, I really didn't like it. And, but when I was thinking about, I knew where I wanted to go to school, but I had no idea what I wanted to study. And I got interested in things like um, pharmacy and orthodontistry, I think just hmm. with uh, dollar signs in my eyes. Okay, right. Um, so, but you know, so I go into school and I went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Yep. Um, so I go in as a pre-pharmacy biology student. So really just going the biology route is, you know, something I have to do to get this, get into pharmacy school, um, you know, but I end up loving just the study of biology. And so I changed my career aspirations a few different times throughout college, um, switch from pre-farm after maybe a year and decide, you know, I'm going to go all the way. I'm going to do pre-med. Um, and some people say that every UNC student goes through a, a pre-med phase. Okay. <laughs> um, so go through that phase and then, um, you know, chemistry is not as easy as I thought it was going to be. Um, and I think that maybe pre-nursing is a better idea. And so I go the pre-nursing route. Um, but then I decide, I think I did some soul searching and realized that I really wasn't built for that type of direct contact with patients. So, and I, you know, all this time, all these years, I'm really enjoying the actual study of biology and all the really great courses I was able to take. So I decided that instead of doing a, a health field, I was going to go and get my PhD in, uh, I was really interested and still am in immunology and microbiology, pathology, like diseases and defense in the body. And so I kind of decided that probably that maybe the end of my junior year, summer before my senior year. So it's getting down to the wire, you know, take the GRE and all those types of things. And, but I knew that I wanted to boost my resume just a little bit more. So I joined uh, a undergraduate research journal oh. uh, where students would interview scientists on campus uh, or professors and write about their research in this journal. So the university could read about what their own scientists were studying. Mm -hmm. And uh, to be honest, I really did just join to write a couple of articles and put that on my resume, but I ended up loving it. And it was so exciting. I loved talking to the scientist and then figuring out how I was going to write about it so that people who weren't scientists would be able to understand. Um, and this is the, the most humbling part of the journey is that I still did apply to seven or eight PhD programs across the country and didn't get into any of them. <laughs> Oh, okay. So that that's my uh, uh, I try not to remember that too much, but humbly, you know, it kind of led me on the path to where I am. Um, so I I had to rethink right around the middle of my senior year what I was going to do after college, which was not the ideal time to have to change my career path. But like I said, I'm ultimately very, very glad that I ended up on the path that I am. Um, so. My personal reasons brought me to Charlotte, which is where I live now, and I ended up uh, in a program for it's a math. It was a master's program in English oh, with okay. a concentration in technical writing. Um, so that was my official program. But then um, I decided to write my thesis about uh, what I called specialist and non-specialist writing, but 
you can also think of it as like academic writing and journals like nature science those types of publications uh compared with popular science writing so popular science or scientific american things like that and so i knew i wanted to focus on science writing and not just technical writing in general so i did that research for my thesis to kind of solidify the scientific writing background that i knew i wanted mm-hmm. and i was always really passionate about what the stylistic differences were between academic writing which is you know written for scientists scientists writing for their peers more or less very and structured popular right yeah. writing right and popular writing written for you know the populace um, and what what those differences were and why the those differences were necessary and and also i was able to do i looked at did the comparison in two different time periods so i did um what i called modern academic and popular science writing and then in the 18th century when the idea of science writing was first coming alive and so that was really interesting comparing across the two time periods and seeing how it's changed and how it's not changed in um, many many centuries and so that is what really that's like I guess my basis my academic basis of you know who I am as a science writer today but what really started my interest in nutrition and health and wellness specifically um, grew out of a passion for correcting misinformation in science because I think I think you're right in that I mean I think misinformation is everywhere of course but nutrition and fitness really for some reason happens to have a lot of you know that type of information where you end up cautiously wondering what the credentials of the writer are and you know what how true or how seriously to take something that you're reading um there just seems to be a lot more people who consider themselves uh credentialed enough or you know of authority enough to you know write these sorts of things and that's a good description of you know what i tend to see um but yeah i was really passionate about correcting misinformation in general um, but this is so back in 2015 when I'm I'm in my sen- spring of senior year of my undergraduate degree. Um, when if you remember, gluten was a really popular topic of discussion. Sure. And gluten-free diets were really big, um, often confused with low calorie. Um, you know, used interchangeably, and that you know isn't always the case. And I had a friend with rheumatoid arthritis, so she had to avoid gluten for very specific medical reasons. Um, and I just found it interesting that you saw gluten-free everywhere. I remember seeing it on um, an advertisement for an oil change, and I think they were kidding, but it, that was just kind of the extreme to where gluten became synonymous with this like bad thing for everybody. Which and I, I know that you know people think differently about you know gluten and gluten-free diets, but ultimately I knew that the the problem was that people didn't really understand what gluten was, and they weren't trying to go and find out. Um, so that is an interesting story of what kind of prompted me on my journey to nutrition is it was stemmed in this frustration with people not understanding, uh, things and not trying to figure out what they are. And so when people write things that are misleading, then you have this populace of people who just believe it and they don't, you know, consider anything else. And then misinformation spreads like wildfire. Yeah. And you know, Um, I, I think that is actually exacerbated because you see a lot of fitness and nutrition gurus. I mean, part of the definition of guru is that you expect a certain level of almost submission from your people, you know, like, um, 
like you're the some master or something. And then this opinion based stuff. When Phil and I started this podcast, um, I can tell you, like Phil, you remember there was a there was a period of years where we went from writing sort of miniature literature reviews on any given topic, whether it's yeah. you know gluten avoidance or whatever. Um, and then there was this trend where, just a couple of years, I think after we left, there, all of a sudden there are no reference lists on the articles. You know, opinion became presented as fact. You know, and yep. these people, I think, sort of to your point, Kara, they feel like they're an authority, so they kind of make mm -hmm. stuff up. And I don't think they honestly know the difference between opinion and evidence-based reality. You know, they're like, mm -hmm. well, this is the. This is my system for what happens after you work out intensely. You know, here's this phase and that phase. And, mm -hmm. and they just apply their own names. And they're not even aware that there's, there's a real history behind this in the literature. And they're just – it's almost embarrassing themselves. Um, mm -hmm. Phil and I used to work with someone specifically, and I think he was very guilty of that. Like he would just have all these um, – make up like his own definitions – you know, and terminology and systems of how things work. And um, I, sure, I mean, on an evidence pyramid kind of professional opinion is better than ignorant opinion, but that's a really weak form of evidence. I mean, you got to test it against reality, man, you know. Um, and so there's yeah. a lot of that. Uh, you're right. I couldn't agree more in our fields. Uh, the top, I, I did a search for the top 15 nutrition podcasts. And to your point about credentials, Oh boy. Like some of them were stellar. Others, I'm like, you know, they're like, when I studied nutrition, and I mean, you're talking about like a certificate for right. a few weekends or something, and you're like, oh my God. And you're right. one of the top, right? There's, there seems to be this disconnect between um, quality and number of hits and popularity. I mean, look around YouTube in our field. Oh my God. You know, the people that are so mm -hmm. eager to be uh, gurus and offer tutorials, quote unquote, mm -hmm. uh, they, you know, they don't have really anything other than some personal uh, background or interest. And that can be fine, but should you expect more, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, you talk about credentials in science writing. I mean, nutrition is a beast all on its own because there are so many different, you know, letters that you see after someone's name and uh, a nutritionist or a registered dietitian might know the difference between a CNS and an RD and an LDN. And, but someone just read, casually reading a blog is not going to know. And they're going to see, oh, nutritionist. You know, I can trust that person. But a lot of people can call themselves a nutritionist and not actually have a, a four-year degree or a certification in, you know, registered as a registered dietitian. Uh, so that field in, in, is very interesting in the in the variety of professionals who claim, you know, this title of nutritionist. Yeah. Well, and Phil, let me ask you just quick before we go to break. But I mean, in fitness, of course, it's not even a licensed field like dietetics or medicine or dentistry. Um, people just have all kinds of certificates. I mean, what what? What percentage of qualifications do you think in the strength conditioning field are just BS? You know, is there a lot the, of it out there? The, the vast majority, <laughs> and it's sad. I mean, that's I mean, there's been a, and the the problem is there's a push by certain people 
to like we need a single governing body that's worth a shit. And the problem is, well, it'll never happen because because of money. Everybody's got skin. I've got skin in this game, and he's got skin in that game. And you know, it's so spread thin, you'll never get anybody to agree and mm-hmm. find something that. And and most of them have a spec like in this single area. They're great. Uh, and then so there's 27 of those. If they could somehow marry each other, it'd be awesome. But th- that'll never happen. So right, spread thin, and everybody cherry picks their own little area. Right on. Uh, to be great at that, you know, it's tough. Yeah, it, with um, the last I checked, there were over 350 different certifications in fitness. Yeah. You know, exactly. and if it's something you're layering on top of an enormous amount of education and experience. Great. You know, you're staying up on your field, you're specializing, getting your CEUs or whatever. But yeah, in the, in the fitness world, yeah, it's the why it remains the wild west in a lot of ways. And yeah, and you Phil, I know we talked about this before and Mike, you probably feel this too, but you get kind of sick of each group telling you you're only legitimate if you're one of us. And it's like, but there's not even a consensus in, you know, again, an unlicensed profession like fitness there's not even a consensus in, you know, a, a single certification being the one, you know. Yeah. So. I mean, I would love to see it where there's some kind of entry-level program nationwide. I mean, for God's sakes, we have to have a license to drive a car. But, like, anybody can take somebody and teach them how to use the most, you know, our human body is vastly more complicated than a car. Mm. But, you know, anybody can teach you how to use it legally. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yep. It hurts you badly, you know. So, but until that happens, yeah, I don't blame people for jumping in the field. It's easy. The the baseline enters nothing. So yeah. yeah, yeah. And related to certifications, as someone who developed a certification, um, I'll get emails from people like never heard of them before. They're not on my newsletter list. They're like, hey. If I do your flex diet cert, what letters do I get? I'm like, this is obviously not for you. (laughs) I don't want your money. Yeah. Because if that's the only thing you're worried about, uh, just just go away. (laughs) Yeah. Well, to Kara's point, I mean, the uh, uh, the average consumer, how are they going to know what like they don't what yeah what top one or two or three certifications or licenses are the ones you're supposed to look for in any specific field? You know. Yeah. Um. Whether it's pharmacy or nutrition or, you know, exercise physiology or whatever, because there's even legitimate groups that are vying for market share, you know, like uh, oh, totally. I'm reading stuff from the ACSM about their strength conditioning special specialty. And I'm like, well, I'm guessing the NSCA doesn't like that. <laughs> you know, yeah. they want to that's their niche. Um, mm-hmm. So even even you get these um, overlapping scopes and interests in because the, there's money, there's money to be made certifying people, you know. And then you get into the whole, so I'm applying for CEUs from different organizations now, and it's pretty darn expensive, and there's no guarantee that you're going to be approved either, you know, so you could send in a bunch of money to try to get CEUs, make sure everything is done appropriately, and they could be like, well, I just don't think this really fits with what we're looking for, which is fine. I mean, that's within their judgment and their purview to say, and okay, well, now you're out a bunch of money. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Um, before we go to break, I wanted to say one thing, Kara. When you were talking about your story, something just really um, 
resonated with me, but I spent a lot of time, of course, in the biology department, you know, in my grad work mm -hmm. in exercise physiology. And uh, I remember a lot of people, a lot of people, they'd say, Lonnie, when are you taking the MCAT? You know, because my sister was a surgeon and I don't know if that had much to do with it, but it was just the assumption that you're in biology because you want mm -hmm. to eventually go into medicine. And I'm like, right. I just like biology. And they thought I right. was mad. They thought I was mad. Right. Um, and I remember even having discussions with my parents, like, can you make a living at that? You know, if, if like, I'm like, I'll find a way. This is what I like. This is my passion. This is what I want to do. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I went through the same thing because when I wanted to go to grad school to learn how to write and to be a writer, my dad was like, are you sure you don't want to go work in a lab? And I'm like, well, you know, biology students can do other things other than work in a right. lab. Right. Yeah. Well, I think. Uh, all four of us on this call right now, what, something we have in common is we all have done science writing, like take something that could be chewy and then write an article uh, for the public because we, we were all maybe equally put off by the amount of mm -hmm. misinformation. I mean, people who are fraudulent, they're not always financially motivated. Sometimes they eagerly and they want to believe they fully have this belief system, whether it's homeopathy or uh, some kind of cleansing diet or whatever it is that they kind of buy into, they believe it. Uh, and But then it doesn't change the fact that they're spreading stuff that's more opinion than evidence and you know yeah. stuff like that. So. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's go to break. When we come back, everybody, we're going to... Uh, have an open conversation with Kara uh, about, you know, qualifications of writers, what to look for, what makes something high quality, um, you know, how a writer wrestles with the difference between eye-catching stuff that people will actually read and they might get educated versus clickbait. You know, there's a lot of things we could talk about with science journalism. So we'll be back. Hello, dear ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it, do it now. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast Airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, in about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture, similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. 
Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everyone, we're back. Uh, it's Mike and Phil and Lonnie, and we have with us Kara uh, Cradle, and she is a science journalist. So we thought, let's just go to the horse's mouth instead of just sort of, um, you know, critiquing what sometimes science journalists will do. You know, I'm always laughing about the evening news, and they'll say something that is a little cringeworthy, you know, and it makes you wonder about their mm-hmm. credentials and things like that. And, um, Kara, back to your point, like during your the discussion of your origin story, um, it reminded me – Sagan used to say society is built on science and technology, but most people don't know anything about science and technology. So in a way, that makes the science journalist or the science writer one of the most important jobs, right? Otherwise, it's an explosive mix. We rely on all this uh, technological power in science, mm-hmm. and if the average person doesn't know anything about it – Oh, my God, you know, they can be manipulated and, you know, for whatever political, financial reasons. So we need the science writers uh, and not just the technical writers, right? Not just manuscript writers. So um, let's start with degrees or qualifications that writers have. So in the in the legitimate world of science journalism, what are some of the things that you would expect? Sure. Well, like I mentioned, my. Uh, I end up, ended up in this master's program for English and studying technical writing. And because I knew I wanted to study science writing in particular, that's what I did my thesis research on. Um, and then for me, because I did want to write about nutrition specifically, I ended up in jobs that where I was able to learn about nutrition. Um, so I consider my early work experience as part of my education as a science writer specializing in nutrition. Um, you know, I worked at um, the North Carolina Research Campus in Kannapolis, North Carolina, and they take, uh, they have universities from all over the state who study some sort of food, agriculture, nutrition mm-hmm. um, that's related to human health. And so I was able to talk to scientists about their research, learn about what they were doing. And so all the time while I was talking to them and doing the writing, I was learning about these core concepts in clinical nutrition. Um, you know, I was, I was writing for labroots.com, not always in nutrition, but in science in general, and would read press releases and journal articles. And really, the for someone who's not a scientist, I think the act of reading journal articles, and like you were saying at the beginning, learning not just to read the discussion, but to also read the methods and look at the graphics and look at the charts and look at the data, Um, And that's not something that you learn quickly. That's something that I think takes a lot of practice. And so I was really lucky that even while I was in grad school, I was working for this research campus and doing this writing. Um, So 
I believe that by the time I graduated and I, I took three years so I could, I was eager to get into the workforce and start making money and getting experience. And then I think I, I did a good job of that because when I graduated, I ended up in a more um, special specialist role in as a communication content strategist in clinical nutrition. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, and be and, and able to, I believe, do that a lot better because I have the academic experience at, in grad school. And then I also have this, you know, kind of uh, experience in nutrition where I was able to learn and write at the same time. Um, that being said, that's definitely just one route someone can take. And like I discussed, I it wasn't exactly planned for me. It all just kind of happened. And I ended up where I am now. But I think that a lot of science writers, maybe who know that's what they want to do ahead of time, they might, first they might major in journalism in undergrad, and they might uh, strengthen that, you know, journalism, the writing core, their academic experience, and then learn the subject matter later. And I kind of did the flip-flop with studying biology and and my undergraduate degree and then studying writing well, my you graduate know, degree. I, th- I honestly think of the two that my bias would be that that's probably the best approach i mean we're we're working on proposing a, a new master's program and um a friend of all of the co-hosts here joey dr antonio he was he started the international society of sports nutrition and i asked him i said what what would you look for in a master's prepared uh you know sports nutrition person and he said please god get people with biology backgrounds and teach them how to write he said they can't communicate you know, they're sucky writers. He used some really strong language. <laughs> uh, anybody who knows uh, Jose Antonio knows how he how he is. But very blunt about, my God, you know, mm-hmm. take a scientist and show them how to write. Because he wasn't convinced that you could necessarily do the opposite. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's mm-hmm. just so foundational to understand, you know, things like what gets confused in journalism sometimes or, or science writing for the general public. Like people mm-hmm. conflate things uh like they don't know the difference between correlation and causation you know and things like that yeah. it happens all the time mm-hmm. um yeah and i, mean, I think i definitely don't disagree <laughs> <laughs> it's it, that's one uh, of those big no-nos you know yeah well and, and sometimes when people i in my career field i'm really lucky to get to talk to a lot of scientists um so for example at my job now i my desk mate is um, a sports nutrition scientist. Okay. And, and that's her specialty. And so I get to ask her questions all the time about just little things, you know, about like the small differences. I mean, correlation and causation, like that's foundational, that's fundamental. And that's and so important for people to know, but there are a lot of times there are these smaller things that a lot of science writers, I mean, I would think maybe wouldn't take the time to really figure out the niche, like nuanced, you know, explanations and differences between terms or things like that um but at the same time i joke sometimes when the scientists i meet um, are interested in my career field and express interest in wanting to learn to write themselves i I joke i'm like well if you teach the scientists how to write then i won't have a job (laughs) (laughs) um but that that being said too i i certainly have felt the pull probably as soon as i graduated from my master's degree to get my own professional degree in nutrition, just to reinforce my authority as a writer, because mm-hmm. um, it's my approach that if I'm going to make a claim or 
you know, I, I always rely on either a reference from a journal and we can, we can talk more about references too, I think, but either that, or I'm basing my article on a direct interview with a scientist. So I always, my uh, credo is always to, you know, back it up, make sure that there's a reference. Don't just pull it out of your head. You're not a scientist, even though you, I do study nutrition and have, you know, a lot for the past five years, but uh, I tell myself, you're not, you don't have a master's in nutrition or a PhD in nutrition. These folks do who've written the article or have done the interview. You know, you need to rely on them to be your um, authority, your subject matter. Expert. I think that's, that's why, especially if you're drifting yeah, a little outside your wheelhouse. I mean, uh, there are so many control variables that can invalidate, you know, some uh, findings or something like that, you know, I mean, hence peer review, I guess, but um, yeah, I think there's a lot of accidental learning and experiential learning as you talk to these yeah. people and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Now, again, all of us th that do this show, part of the reasons we did this is audio is faster than writing an article, right? The writing part is fairly fast, but if you're going to do this, like um, try to come up with some type of consensus at the current state of the literature, it takes days and days, you know, the reference list is, mm -hmm. is what chews on, you know, you just chew on it and chew on it. And, but the, the, the point being is, yeah, it's, um, it just becomes an issue. I wanted to say something to Phil though. Um, cause Phil, I know you got to get off to the gym and everything, but, um, cause the next question I'm going to have for Kara is about quality and how to identify it. Um, just to put you on the spot a little bit, but the publications that you've worked at, the web publications, and I know eventually you started doing some of your own stuff, but moderating and writing and the stuff you've done, do you consider them high quality? No, I consider them money driven. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> They're very biased. And, yeah. So, yeah. No. Yeah. Well, that's all you really feel. Right. I mean, that's just I mean, even even some of the publications I sent in, like I got turned, I sent a a long great article to muscle and fitness and they sent it back telling me it was too what was it too scholarly for their publication mm -hmm. um yeah it needed to be dumbed down well fuck it, don't take it then you right <laughs> then we're done all right you know, you know but uh yeah so no i mean it's that you know right very, very biased all of them are very biased and and financially driven towards mm -hmm. what they're selling right and, you know, unfortunately, I think um, I, I'm thinking of one in particular, but you get a bunch of like competing strength coaches and they start sort of bashing each other like passive aggressively, you know, because yes. they're they're in direct competition for market share. You know, so it, the, it, the pursuit of truth isn't the point that that's a yeah. that's a good point, Phil. <laughs> it's yeah, no, and it's become worse because now with social media and all the drama it creates, these publications are looking for that, too, especially the one you're speaking of in general. They will. They will post an article and expect a the opposite article to come out come out within a week, yeah. right? Something with the opposite tone on the same subject, purposely because that's what they yeah. want purposefully yeah. want people they want drama because it gets mm -hmm. people back to the site and then they can argue. People will sit there for hours endlessly arguing nothing. So, yep, yep. Uh, well, let's get to that, Kara, then. Um, how can listeners yeah. actually identify something that's high quality or trustworthy? Yeah, and I think this is a important question always, but now especially um, when being able to know when and how to trust science, I think is just so important. 
Um, I start with journal articles from peer-reviewed journals are always great, especially if you can see that they've been cited by a lot of other scientists and other, and other publications. I think that shows that their peers see its value and um, you know rely on it for their own uh, reference and their own research. Um, that being said, journal articles sometimes aren't the most accessible, uh, literally and uh, uh, more uh, mentally yeah. uh, accessible. But um, so kind of at the next level, I also like websites like the Harvard School of Public Health and the Harvard Health Blog. Um, those are probably more geared toward nutrition, um, but um, other renowned universities have similar websites. Uh, Tufts and Tufts. John Hopkins have really great yeah. health information. Um, other great websites for health and wellness, um, things like Cleveland Clinic, all the sites from the National Institutes of Health. Um, and I think everyone also has their favorite news outlets also. And that's where it gets a little hairy because you don't, like we've been talking about, know exactly where the writer is coming from because it's, uh, you know, more general publications that are less about the subject matter you're interested, whether that's nutrition or fitness or uh, whatnot. But um, I'll say that my favorite uh, general news outlets for health and wellness information are NPR, New York Times, and Washington Post. Um, and that's, I know that's a lot of names to list on the various levels and certainly not all inclusive. But I think over time, someone sh could learn to know what sources to look for on your list of Google results. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. and it, it's, it's really tough and it's not a science, but for example, when I'm typing a query in, um, I usually know what I'm looking for. You know, I have a lot of practice, but anyone who Googles things, uh, which I assume is pretty much everybody can kind of learn to, what I do is I don't read the, uh, like the, the first line, the subject line on the Google entry. I look at the sources first. So I don't, I don't let my eye be drawn to something that maybe um, my bias is leaning toward. Yeah. Um, I look at the source. So if it's has some weird like dot me, you know, web address, I definitely just ignore it. And I, I think too, I guess I'd like to play devil's advocate with myself because you don't always want to just go with the websites that you know, because just because everyone knows them doesn't necessarily mean that they're the authority on the subject. A lot of times that's true. Um, something that's renowned is usually well known. Um, but I think that being able to just be in the practice of reading more than one source, I think is helpful too. So if you're inclined to read one website or one you know, piece of news, just try and read a couple of different ones. And if you've read five articles on the same subject and they're all coming to the same conclusion, then, you know, it's more and more likely that this is something that you can trust. And I think that if you're someone who's really passionate about making sure that you're reading, you know, news that's true and reading information that's true, you'll be in the practice of, you know, reading from multiple news sources and then taking mental note of what those sources are, who the authors are. Um, a lot of websites, too, will even have bios for the authors, and you can read about how long they've worked and where they are, what their background is. Um, that can help, too. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, I'll add, too, I'd, I'd like to think there's a, there's a human intuition, too, um, which I rely on for myself about you know, what, what seems too good to be true or what seems too dramatic to be true. 
I think we'll, we'll probably talk about sensationalism, but you know, what seems too amazing to be true. Like there's a certain, I think, intuition or critical eye that we can add to this. It's a good point. Just make it a general practice. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a good point about like, what are realistic changes? You know, I was just talking about a couple hundred calorie difference in metabolic rate after dieting or something like that. Like a lot of times if Phil or Mike or I, we see something through education and experience, we can look at that and be like, yeah, I'm skeptical of that, right? Because it's it's just an, it's something's an order of magnitude above what you expect in a blood value, for example, you know, blood marker. Okay, the, what's what's the real motivation here? You know, did they measure something wrong? Or are they trying to make a point? Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. let's face it, the social environment right now, and this, I know this is probably something else you think about with uh, the pandemic and everything, but we have this incredibly hyper-partisan environment where people want to be in echo chambers, you know, and they people mm-hmm. double down and they cherry pick to make a point. I've seen that a lot lately with um, whether or not kids, you know, spread coronavirus and how much they do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm watching people on both sides of this argument totally cherry picking. Yes, look at all these studies that they... They, they spread stuff like wildfire and then over here, no, they don't at all. Look at these, you know, and then they're only taking the parts. It's almost like they argue like a lawyer instead of being balanced like a scientist, you know. Right. And that's got to be hard in journalism, uh, I imagine, right? Like how yeah. do you, you know, you're, you're like you said, you play devil's advocate with yourself because you don't mm-hmm. want to uh, – what was it Sagan used to say? We tend not to be especially critical when we see evidence that seems to uh, back up our prejudices, you know, you're mm-hmm. not going to be highly mm-hmm. critical yeah. of it. Um, right. And so you have to almost, you're, you're a human being, right? You have to force yourself mm-hmm. to try to create some balance when you, uh, when you write about this stuff. Right. Yeah. I think that, um, that bias is really powerful and it's even when, you know, I'm, I'm conscious of it and self-aware that that's a factor in my writing or in my reference choices, even being aware of it, it still has an effect. So if you think about people who aren't aware of it or who don't, who are aware, but don't care, you know, that, and you don't, those types of people just don't feel the the sense of duty, I think, to inform the public in a trustworthy, like kind of, I don't know, honorable way. Um, But I, I mean, I think that's important. And especially now, I think it's really evident and, um, one thing I was going to add is that I think a key part of being a a writer with integrity is to admit when you were wrong or misled um, because, I mean, even just a couple months ago, there was an article published in a journal, um, very well-known journal, you know, the kind of art kind of journal where you read the title and, you know, you skim over the article and you just are like, okay, I'd take this as truth because it's the article because it's these authors from this university or this research foundation and you just believe it. And then it ended up, um, uh, I don't think it was redacted, but a lot of on science Twitter, so to speak, a lot of scientists were critiquing the, the methods and critiquing, you know, the observations that they had made. And so it just goes to show that even when you have the most renowned journal, I mean, sometimes things happen and the research isn't as strong as you may have written about or, posted about on social media. And I think that it's important to go back and say, hey, everybody, it turns out that this study wasn't as, uh, you know, strong or wasn't as Mm -hmm. uh, reliable as we thought it was, you know, and basically just being able to say that that can happen and not 
um, like double double down and like you said, cherry pick to make sure that you know your argument you know stands up and withholds. So mm-hmm. um, that I think is really important and not something that a lot of people do because well, the 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 draw to be right is very powerful. It is, it is. But you know what you're talking about, it, I think is a, is like a, a higher tier of critical thinking, right? It's one thing to identify completely lay BS, you know, like on YouTube, a lot of the nutrition advice on YouTube, you know, it's, it's another one to critique a peer reviewed paper, right? Mike, you were talking just before the break about, you know, you'd want to dig into the methods and there are potential flaws. I mean, Mike and I, I mean, as reviewers of journals, sometimes some kind of, you know, crappy stuff actually gets into print, you know, a peer review isn't magical. Uh, Can you speak to that, Mike? Because, I mean, we do have different levels. I mean, there's the obvious identify uh, nonsense and and, uh, someone with an ulterior motive, you know. Um, But then there's maybe above that for maybe our uh, more nuanced listeners, even critiquing scientific papers that come out. Yeah, I mean, I think the peer review process overall is good but people on the outside looking in may think that it's a perfect process which it's not remotely close to that of course nothing's perfect anyway um to me one of the things that i think there's a lot more error in the system or changes because i'm sure this probably happened to you lonnie too is that part of going through a PhD program, I know that we kind of did a couple peer reviews as an example in one of our meetings, and then that was it. It's like, oh, hey, at some point, hey, do you want to look this over? And then your advisor will look it over like, okay, looks good. It's like, I, oddly enough, I was never really instructed on the peer review process per se. I felt bad and I had to ask a buddy of mine, I'm like, hey, I did this peer review. Can you look at a couple to see if I'm even in the right ballpark? <laughs> Yeah. Um, which I think is kind of weird. And then you obviously have the person's, you know, bias on what they're doing, you know, and if, for example, you're talking about protein and it gets sent to a lab that does a lot of, you know, mechanistic protein work looking at leucine, they're probably going to want you to mention a lot of that stuff because that's what they've dedicated their whole life to. So they feel it's extremely important, right? So you always have kind of unintended biases from different labs based on you know what they're doing Um, obviously you're not compensated for peer review and i've had some where i've spent oh god hours and hours on and you know some where you know english is not necessarily their first language either so it's sometimes hard to figure out if this was uh, unintended consequence of that just because of the language difference or was it something that maybe that's what they really intended? You know, so all those things kind of go into it to make it's it not thankless. really a perfect yeah. process. And in essence, you're also just kind of expected to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. and if I'm honest, like a lot of the peer reviews I still do now is just mostly out of academic guilt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. Totally. All right, last question uh, for you, Kara, is, uh, I mean... You want to have an impact, right? I mean, I was just – listeners have heard me uh, lament this before, but, you know, you, you watch – there's a video on YouTube of a cat vomiting 3 million views, you know, and then there's some intellectual conversation going on somewhere else, and there's, a, you know, a couple of dozen views. 
you know, that kind of stuff. So there's not automatically a connection between popularity and and quality, you know, or value. Um, mm-hmm. How do you personally balance getting, a, an, a, you know, using an attention-grabbing headline? I know you say you kind of avoid looking at that when you do your searches and whatnot, but um, mm-hmm. how do you yourself create attention-grabbing headlines without falling into the, you know, the the siren song of clickbait, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is certainly a conundrum for many science writers who care deeply about the quality of their craft. I, I'm constantly torn on how to find a balance between writing interesting titles without engaging that sensationalism um, or, you know, that can mislead readers, which in my opinion may diminish my integrity as a science writer and whether or not other science writers feel that same uh, sense of duty or responsibility, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, on one hand, catchier titles do equal more clicks, which usually leads to a happier editor. Yeah. And all writers do have to do have to make a living. But I also think, and this may uh, may make me sound cheesy or altruistic, but I can't help it. I, I do think <laughs> that writers, myself included, have some responsibility to yes. guide the public toward the truth. And we have to find a way to do that without misleading them with a sensationalized title. Because the reality is the title may be all that is read in some cases and in others, even if they do read the full article, it's likely that they just skim for 60 seconds or so if you're lucky. Um, I think about that a lot when I'm writing intricate metaphors or I think I'm writing some clever sentence and I'm like, hmm, I wonder how many people will actually read this. <laughs> but, um, but yeah. And so people read, either read the title or they skim for 60 seconds. And then later they tell their friend that they read that this new diet is the answer to all their problems or eating whatever food is the key to preventing cancer or whatever right. they think they've read. And no, there's not an exact method, but we have to find a way to tell the truth in an engaging and honest way. And I won't say that I've I've written 100% genuine, you know, honest titles. I, I know I've I've definitely experienced in my career um, click pressure. You know, if someone's writing, sure. um, if if your editor says, okay, well, you got this many clicks, but so and so got this many clicks, um, and I used to get frustrated too because when you're writing for a publication where they cover a wide variety of sciences, if you're writing for immunology and cell and molecular biology and your peer is writing for plants and animals in space, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's a lot easier to write a fun title about like a new species of panda. I don't know. Or, you know, an article about T cells and B cells, you know, it's just one's more interesting than the other. Like I can't help it. Um, So that's, that's been an issue. Well, you know, it's, it's i've laughed about this before mike and i've had these conversations but right that's one of the reasons why i think and maybe this is why you drift in this lean in this direction sometimes too is at least nutrition is a way to meaningfully talk about chemistry or biochemistry or certain things like that like mike and i will talk about like you know like we're not going to ramble on about the delta G of pyruvate dehydrogenase. You know what I mean? And <laughs> when, when we can talk about, oh, there is a linchpin between carb burning and your central metabolic wheel. And that is actually a problem when it comes to, you know, switching from a high carb to a low carb diet or, you know, or something like that mm-hmm. uh, or mm-hmm. vice versa. 
yeah, so I understand what you're saying. There are things that are, um, by nature, a little bit more interesting that maybe that you yeah. can cover. Right. Uh, are you right. given assignments, by the way, for the most part, or are you? Do you have the steering wheel yourself about the topics you choose? Um, in some way. So I, I do. I have my, you know, I guess day job, and then I do contract writing. And so for uh, most of the time in contract writing, I get to choose. Um, but it, that depends if you're working with um, other folks and there's an editorial calendar that's constantly being updated. It's like a race to see who yeah. gets to write the cool article about cannabis and cancer or something like that. Yep, because yep. some things, you know, the title writes itself and you can you get lucky and the, it just so happens that the title is interesting. Um, and but I, so I do get to choose. Um, but that being said, you know, if I'm, I'm covering immunology every week. Um, so right now I cover immunology and cannabis sciences. And if you're covering immunology and you need to write so many articles in a week and there, you can't control what new research is published that week. So if it's a really dense article about T cell maturation or, you know, antibodies, then you got to take what you got and do work with it the best you can. And I, I'd like to think that when you're at the crossroads and you're trying to decide what your title is going to be and you know that you could go one of two ways. I'd like to think that, that the integrity t- like takes precedent over the, the, the click, the click minded, but yeah. it really just depends on, I guess on what mood I'm in, but I really do push myself to honor the, you know, the truth of the article over anything else. Well, but. you know, I applaud that uh, your stubbornness in that, because I mean, we're very <laughs> stubborn here. It, it depends on the platform. Like on iTunes, we have, it's just orders of magnitude more, clicks if you will than on our youtube backup but but the point being is uh, regardless of social media we're very stubborn like the google analytics i mentioned earlier everybody wants all the time fat loss fat burning fat loss fat burning that's what gets the clicks and we won't do it (laughs) like we're not gonna do that we we uh, we have this sort of agenda to talk to people like yourself, scientists, journalists, you know, people and and the athletes themselves, you know, um, and you've got to have a little bit of willingness to when when you're running on your own. Say, fine, then don't click it. You know, we're going to keep putting this out there because we have a dedicated small community. Right. And we're just going to try to provide that service uh, for them. You know, we haven't missed a week in almost 11 years. And mm-hmm. so that's consistency is huge you know a, some level of quality and self-respect uh and if you just chase the most common things you know i mean if you look at the fitness podcasts for example all the big ones are they're much more general you know we're a very niche egghead meathead weightlifter kind of thing that are interested mm-hmm. in science uh, yeah. and that's just not gonna it's not gonna have as much appeal but that brings me to my last point about I know you've got some projects yourself going on uh, where you have the steering wheel entirely um, and you get to control the content and that kind of stuff, right? Yes. Um, I It's a project I've been working on the past couple of months, actually not really related to nutrition um, or health for that matter, but it still stems from that part of myself that wants to uh, seek self-awareness and honesty and genuine dialogue um, between people of the world. And um, it was uh, particularly inspired by the pandemic and um, divisiveness and 
um, me wanting to put something like positive back in the world when I felt so helpless in all of this, um, not feeling like I had a lot to give. Um, all that being said, it's a, a new a new podcast that a, a short series that I'm doing called Perspective 2020. And uh, what I'm doing is interviewing different people from different walks of life, different jobs, different different backgrounds, different academic experiences, um, different perspectives who may, uh, how their, their different perspectives shape how they behave, how they believe what they do um, in the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and so the goal is to really encourage people to consider the perspective of someone who thinks differently from them, not necessarily to change someone's mind or, you know, cause someone to have this great epiphany, but just to consider that, you know, another human being is different from them and they have their different beliefs because of, you know, their background or right. some life experience that's affected them. So um, the trailer comes out on Sunday night. It'll be on, you know, Spotify and iTunes and all those the usual suspects and yep. you can learn more at perspective2020pod.com. That's cool. It sounds like it might be a little divergence from your usual fare. Is that, is that true? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, I guess I, sometimes I say it's more of like a human project than a, a health project. So like the human side of me, as opposed to the nerdy science health side. Um, but it's just something I kind of felt called to do and I don't know. We'll see what happens. We'll see if people listen. Yeah. Right on. Okay. <laughs> Well, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah thank you so much for helping great. us out. Thank you. It's good to get a science journal. I just want our listeners to know that you know we're not just. And I, I tend to be salty. Mike's more positive than I am. I think, but not today. Well, that's true. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, what's real is real. But we're a little hard on the science journalists, right? But I hope we weren't jerks yeah. with you or anything. We're just trying to go to the horse's mouth, you know, and ask some. You know, sometimes hard to answer questions, I guess. You know. Yeah, no, it was great. I, I totally get it. I'm, I'm hard on myself, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. So that's going to be it for this week. Uh, and we'll check in with you next time. See you. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each Hall of Iron are actually based on our own recommendations protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening.
Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.